Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 235, where we interview Bob Haynes and talk about making a high income, a lot of mistakes, and still reaching financial independence. I think there were seven houses like across that whole time frame. Um, like two of them I would call successful, <laughs> where we actually made some money. Um, one was like a break even. And then the other four, we just got slaughtered, just completely slaughtered. What do you, what would you say the cumulative losses were here? Uh, about $300,000. And that's split between you and your brother? Uh, unfortunately, no. Each. That was my, that was my side. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me as always is my like-minded co-host, Scott Trench. Oh, I feel the same way, Mindy. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for having me. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else. To introduce you to every money story, because we truly believe that financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate, start your own business, or learn from other people's investing mistakes. We'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards your dreams. I am super excited to talk to my friend, Bob Haynes today. And as you are listening, I want people to kind of ignore the fact that he did make a high income. His income wasn't that high forever. That was actually the, the top was only one year and he made um, probably half that much on average, which is still a high salary. He still had a really great income, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned through the mistakes that he made. And I think that you can still get a lot out of this episode, even if you're not quite in his same tax bracket. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that the fact that he earns a large income is due to a very successful career. And so if you are planning on having a very successful career, think you're setting yourself up for one, this episode is going to help you understand, hey, if you if you make some decisions that are different from his, or if you set yourself up in a different trajectory, you can achieve financial independence in five to 10 years, or maybe less with those things instead of the 20 that it took Bob. And I think there's a lot of really powerful lessons to learn here. I think he's got a fantastic journey and he's clearly won in a huge way, uh, being uh, retired now at age 44. So congratulations to Bob and his wife and, and look forward to hearing their story today. Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, 
we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Bob Haynes, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I'm excited too, Mindy. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's jump right into your money story because this one is fascinating to me. Where does your story with money begin? Um, I guess... When I was really little, I remember my grandmother kind of showing me around her house and telling me how she bought everything in cash and uh, that that was kind of the best way to set up your life was to not take on debt and to use cash for your purchases. And then she also taught me about the rule of 72 and told me that when I established myself in my career, I was allowed to spend 10% of every raise and just to buy savings bonds with uh, the other 90% every time I um, got a raise. So that's kind of like my earliest recollection of money and how it works in the real world. Savings bonds. Did you take her up on that suggestion? <laughs> no, I think uh, by the time I was ready to, to really start investing, yields were extremely low. So I really started with uh, individual stocks and mutual funds when I got started. I do think that's a better investment choice. Yeah, absolutely. Especially these days. So so what, what walk us through kind of what where things uh, ended up for you after high school, college, those, kind, those kinds of years. Sure. So um, I worked my way through high school, I, I started working at age 12. And um, when I went to, to college, I went away for my first year and uh, came back and actually got a part-time job working in my career field, which is IT. And when I was getting ready to go back to school, um, my boss came to me and said, hey, look, we don't want you to go away. We want you to stay here. We want to offer you a full-time job. I was a little conflicted about that because I knew a bunch of people that started to go to college went and got a full-time job and then never finished it. So I wrote out my goals that I wanted to uh, complete my degree and become a you know software engineer for a software company. And um, it ended up taking me five years instead of four years. But part of the perks of that job was they would pay for my tuition 100%. So I ended up um, you know completely debt-free out of college um, with some money in the bank in a you know, pretty good financial position to kind of launch my career. I felt like much better than my peers that didn't have the four years of on-the-job training that I had. Holy cow. And what sort of salary were you making at the time? I think when I graduated, I was making something around $40,000 a year. 
And within weeks of me graduating, I think they bumped me up to 50K a year because they thought I was a flight risk, which they were right. So, okay. And so, so what happens there? Where does, where, where, where does the, the, the money journey or where, where do you kind of, do you begin investing at this point or how do you spend this, this money that you're beginning to make? Yeah. I think that, um, you know, we had automatic enrollment in the 401k at work and, and, uh, you know, I just signed up for that. And then I took, extra dollars um, and started a, you know, in a taxable brokerage account, um, picking individual stocks, which in hindsight was not the best choice, but you know that's what I did at the time. Um, I also made some pretty big mistakes. I mean, I went out and bought a brand new car, I think around that time, you know, with a payment of $504 a month or something like that. Um, so I wasn't, you know, exactly doing what, uh, what my grandmother had suggested, but um, it was uh, it was good in that you know it taught me what not to do. And what year was this? Well, and you deserved it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I deserved it. Uh, so I graduated in '97. Uh, graduated college in 1997. Okay, so you start out, you're making pretty good money. You're investing in a 401k. You've got the brokerage account. You've got a you've got a, a brand new car, all that kind of stuff. How does the money journey progress from there? Yeah, so I think that I just really focused on enhancing my career over time has really been my focus, and uh, you know, kind of just keeping the level playing field. I went and, and bought a townhouse once again in hindsight, way 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 too big of a place for me, and I had no roommate, so it was like a four bed, three and a half bath place um, that just just I was staying in. And I, um, I really tried to maximize, you know, I did a bunch of salary surveys to figure out what I was worth in the marketplace and uh, figured out I was worth 85, at least 85 grand a year. and went to my boss and said, Hey, look, here's my salary survey. Here's what I'm worth. Here's what you guys tell me. I'm like, you know, five stars on my reviews. Can you give me the, you know, the 85 grand? And he's like, listen, I think you're worth it, but you know, that's just not going to be something I can do for you here. We've got to preserve internal equity, which I had no idea what that phrase meant, but I guess effectively for people that were already there, they couldn't make less than me because I was, you know, a new guy. And at the time it's pretty brazen of me, I guess, thinking back, you know, I was 22 years old and like demanding a, a probably a 60% pay increase. But um, roughly two weeks later, he had my, my two-week notice, and I found a job making 85 grand a year. And uh, I just kind of progressed from there, really um, spending time on increasing my skills and uh, being able to push my income up over time while simultaneously holding my you know, daily living expenses relatively low over time. I think that that's really interesting there. And, you know, I think if I, if, you know, this is like, I think a great lesson for a lot of folks because early in your career, that is when you are likely to see the biggest percentage salary increases is in those first couple of years out of college and knowing your market value, knowing what, what your skill set is worth in the marketplace is valuable. Bringing that to your boss and saying, here's what it is, is one thing. Your, your boss or their, your employer may have said, that's great. And maybe Bob's, you know, skill set is worth 85K in the marketplace, but it's not worth that to us. We don't need that right now. And so maybe they just weren't able to give it to you. But by knowing that, you were able to give them a chance to, to make the offer and then move on and jump ship to the next company with that. And I think that's a perfect um, way to, to go about it in those early days in the career if, if that's what you're looking to do with those things. So I think it was great. Yeah, I, I think that I really lucked out doing that again being so brazen when I was young, because hindsight being 2020, had they given me that increase? I mean, there are a lot of people that I worked with 
back at that organization that here we are, you know, 25 years later, they're all still working there. So it really gave me kind of the boot out the door to, to get out in the real world and then hustle from there. So I could have gotten comfortable and stayed there for my career. I would not be financially independent today if I had done that. Well, I, I did the exact same thing early in my career. And I think that it, it's like, it all goes down to risk, right? What is the risk of, of the, of, of a decision like that early in your career? Well, the risk is you move on and, and, and maybe are, have a little bit of trouble replacing that job, but you're probably not going to come in way under where you just left uh, in that type of in that type of market or that type of industry. And the bigger risk, I think, is staying if you if it's not what you like to do and it's not where you want to be long term with that, because then you get complacent over a period of time with the, with those types of things. And I think that that's really powerful a really powerful lesson and framework to think about. It is there's risks associated with both inaction and action, and the risks long term I think are way bigger with inaction. So kudos to you. Um, and all of your compensation increases have been based as a, probably a percentage of the new $85,000 salary for compounding over, you know, uh, I, I, I assume a pretty successful career here. Yeah, exactly. That's the, the one thing that I did right. I think I did a lot of things wrong, but the one thing I did right was really focus on my core competencies, my skill set, the value that I could bring to any organization and then monetizing that. Um, and then, you know, coupled that with, you know, after not doing a lot of things right, just kind of keeping my living expenses low over time. And that's what that's what really helped me get there. Well, yeah. you, you just told us that you started out your out of college, making 50K a year in 97, that you um, started put in auto enrolled the 401k, took extra dollars and invested in taxable brokerage account, maybe bought a new car. And then got an and got a thirty five thousand dollar raise within a year or two. What did you start doing wrong? Where does that? Where does this part of the, the story come in place? <laughs> oh gosh, Scott, you don't have all day. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm hearing that, I but that, that doesn't that. seem like a like like a lot went wrong so far yet. You know, no debt. <laughs> yeah, you know, everything's going well. Uh, yeah. So I think that well, a, a few things, right? So I I actually went decided to go out on my own for a while which was super successful until the dot-com bubble burst. So I ended up having to go back to work for somebody else. Um, I guess in hindsight, it really just, uh, it kind of put my career trajectory a little bit on pause. So I probably didn't climb as, as high and as fast as I would have if I had stayed somewhere else. But I wanted to give the entrepreneurship thing a try. So we're in 1997. You just got a, a new job with an $85,000 increase that continues for some period of time. And then you leave to do entrepreneurship. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, I left relatively quickly. I mean, um, so wait, wait, I graduated in 97. I actually, um, worked at my new job, I think until 99. And then that's when I, that's when I left and went out on my own. Okay. So in 90, in 1999, what's your financial position and what do you do? Um, I was doing Linux consulting and I was probably when you Look at my financial position. I don't have a good. I mean, I, I was in the black, but I don't know where where I was. I mean, I kind of um, you know had a, had a big uh, disparity between what I was making and what I was spending. So I was in a decent financial position to go out on my own. I think I probably had, if I had to to guess at that time, I had probably somewhere in the low six figures of of net worth at that point. Okay. And so what, what is the, you're doing Linux consulting. How does this turn out? What is the, what does the journey into entrepreneurship look like? How long does it last? And what's the the outcome? 
Yeah, I, it lasted about two years. I had some great projects at the beginning. And then after the dot-com bubble burst, um, a lot of my clients were just kind of cutting projects back and just delaying them. So it's not like I couldn't pay my bills anymore, but I was working less and less frequently. And I actually um, was starting to think about maybe going back to work for somebody else. And I just got a call from a headhunter one day and, uh, you know, sounded like the perfect job for me at a software company, which I had always wanted to work for a software company. Uh, that was kind of like my dream. And uh, so I went in and interviewed with them. The headhunter told me that normally they take two weeks to make a decision. You got to do three telephone interviews before you can go in in person. I had one telephone interview. It was like the day before Thanksgiving. They wanted me to come in the Monday after Thanksgiving. Uh, by the time I finished interviewing, you know, th that half a day there, um, I was on the ride back down the turnpike in, in New Jersey. And I got a call from the headhunter that said, hey, don't accept any other position because this is very rare, but they want to make you an offer and they're going to make you an offer later today. So I was like, all right, great. Sounds good. And I think at that time when they came back to me, I was making just over $100,000 a year, maybe, uh, you know, $110,000 a year or something like that um, in two. 2001, I think that was. Awesome. And so what happened, how long does this continue for? And what's like the next part of your, your financial journey here? Yeah. So I started working there, um, basically, you know, doing installs for customers over the phone and they never had anybody that traveled. So they asked, Hey, does anybody want to travel to customer sites? I'm like, sure, I'll travel to customer sites. So I started doing that, which was great. The sales guys pulled me into some big meetings at, uh, like QVC and Goldman Sachs. They said, Hey, look, we've got, um, you know, customers require demos. So can you come demo the product? I'm like, sure. So that, uh, kind of brought me into this new, uh, career field of pre-sales engineering, which was phenomenal because that really allowed me to uh, significantly increase um, my compensation over time. So it's like you can still be an engineer, but you get paid more like a, a sales guy. And this is something that's common in enterprise software companies where they have sales teams, which consist of um, sales reps and managers, but then they also couple them with uh, engineers that can actually help the customer understand the product and how it would work in their environment and really help to close the technical sale. And um, I was at that organization, I think all told, for about nine years um, and kind of moved into the sales engineering role, um, up my compensation to probably 150, uh, 200. And then at some point, I think my last year there, I actually went into sales for a year and uh, made almost 500K, maybe 490K, something like that, that year. Oh, wow. And that and was then, what year? Uh, uh, so nine years, so that would have been probably 2010, I guess, around there. Awesome. So you've been, so, so, you've been financially ahead, independent Nitty. for 10 years, right? <laughs> yeah, if only, right? Um, you know, in reading The Millionaire Next Door, um, you know, there's the under-accumulator of wealth and the prodigious accumulator of wealth. I didn't do bad, but I'm not as prodigious as, as some folks. So, you know, I did let my lifestyle creep up a bit. But, you know, the main things, the housing and the cars kind of like stayed, stayed the same. So it didn't really matter that I was taking more, you know, expensive vacations and maybe going out to eat more often because, you know, I had the, the income pushed up enough to, to be able to compensate for that. Well, yeah. And were you still investing during this period of time? Yeah. So at some point along the journey, you know, I made the decision that I wanted to max out my 401k account. I mean, that was probably, you know, 
it was probably back in 2000, I would say 2001, something like that. Um, so I was maxing my 401k and then like extra dollars that would accumulate in my savings account. I would just take those and uh, push it into a, a taxable brokerage account and invest in there. Okay. So, so we're at 2010. What happens next? I ended up taking another job for kind of a partner company. And, um, when I went there, the whole idea was I was going to be a solutions architect, sales and pre-sales engineer, but really get paid like a sales guy. So I was on a sales team and, um, you know, did fairly well there. I mean, I probably made, um, on average about 225 a year. I mean, some years would, would jump up because of my compensation package. Some years I made over 400, some, some bad years I maybe only made, you know, 165 or something like that. Um, but you know, worked there until I, I ended up leaving my career, you know, two years ago. Awesome. Um, so where, where, what, what, what are you doing during investing during this period of time? So I guess, you know, for the most part, I was just doing the, um, investing in my 401k, investing in my taxable brokerage. And then at some point, my brother and I started, uh, going to a couple of, um, real estate groups and, and looking at real estate investing. And we thought that it would be, you know, something that we could do kind of as a side hustle on the side to grow our wealth and, you know, make some extra dollars. And so we started investing, um, I guess back in maybe was it 2005, 2006 timeframe and, um, you know, did some, got some success early on <laughs> with a couple of houses and then, uh, quickly probably, you know, got ahead of ourselves by acquiring too many properties too fast and not being able to get the work done in time and then got hit by the, uh, the great financial crisis and ended up underwater on multiple properties. Mm. So can you, can you walk us through some of the details of this? Like how did that, how did that happen? And, and where, where were you when the financial crisis hit and how, what did that look like? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, at the time, you know, we were invested in, you know, residential, we were investing in residential real estate that was, um, you know, kind of downtrodden that needed, you know, fixing up. And it was in the state of New Jersey where unfortunately the carrying costs are pretty high, um, just because of property taxes and, and whatnot. And, um, <laughs> the bottom line was, uh, we probably didn't have, we really didn't have a plan. I mean, I, if I, if I, you know, take a giant step back and say, you know, what was the biggest problem here? It's like, we didn't have a really good articulated strategy and tactical plan to, to do these flips in a really efficient manner. And, um, yeah, we got sideways really quick when the uh, financial crisis came in and, um, the property values dropped so quickly that, you know, in most cases, it didn't even make sense to keep pouring, you know, good money after bad because we knew we were already underwater on the properties. And uh, it took a really long time to, to unwind those positions. So I, if, I, if my memory serves correctly, it probably took for the last property to get for us to unwind, it took about two and a half years from acquisition. And this is something that we thought was going to be gone within, you know, four months of purchasing it. So. Yeah. So that is what happened to a lot of people, I think, in 2008, because if you remember back in 2005, when you were getting started, 
oh, housing prices are just going up and up and up and up and up and you can't lose and housing prices never go down. And it was so easy to buy a house, make repair, sell it, and then do it again and again and again. And of course, you're going to buy several houses because look at you, you're loaded. You're making way too much money doing this job and you don't spend any of it. So, oh, I might as well just buy real estate. I can see how it would be very easy to get into that position. How many houses are we talking about? Um, so, I mean, <laughs> all told, I guess there were, I think there were seven houses like across that whole time frame. Um, like two of them I would call successful <laughs> where we actually made some money. Um, one was like a break even, and then the other four, we just got slaughtered, just completely slaughtered. What do you, what would you say the cumulative losses were here? Uh, about $300,000. And that's split between you and your brother? Uh, unfortunately, no. Each. That was my, that was my side. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Let me, let me, let me ask you this. How did you, were, were you, was this over, how many years did this, were these losses over? Um, I mean, it took... It, like I said, it took about two and a half years to completely unwind like the last position, which meant that there were carrying costs, you know, that entire time. Mm. Um, you know, but I, I think, um, <laughs> honestly, Scott, it was such a traumatic experience, like from a financial perspective for me that I like, I try to forget the deal. Like, you didn't I, spend I a lot like of time tabulating your losses down to the last penny across this what what, what happened no uh, I, that, that makes that makes perfect sense what, what i want to observe here though is that you know we got the the overview of your career trajectory prior to this and we know that yeah. this was some of your like it, during this recession it seemed like we're actually some of your peak earning years so you were crushing right. it at work during this period of time yes. Um, which I think was a huge, which was probably a huge part of this story where you're able over two and a half years to essentially easily cover that 300,000, not easily, but, but you're able to cover it with your income even right. after tax yeah. because, because of that really strong income. Do you think that the losses during this period in your real estate portfolio drove you to push as hard as possible at work? Was there, was there any, any relation relationship there between the two? Yeah. I mean, I would say that I've always been super diligent on, on the work front. Um, so I don't know that it drove me to be better there, but what it did do is it drove me to be super stressed <laughs> because I knew that, you know, I, I needed that income to make sure that, you know, I could still, I say, stay afloat. That's not really true, but that's how it felt to me at the time. Um, that I really needed to, to keep that job. So, um, yeah, I think the, but the job was some, you know, I had some solace knowing that, you know, I had built, you know, some really solid contacts in the, in my field and I was, um, really well regarded from a, a reputation standpoint. So I knew if something happened at my company, I would be able to go and, and get another job, which was a good feeling to have. Yeah. D during this period, how, how, were you, were you continuing to max out your 401k and do some of those other types of investing? Did you own a home? Yeah. I think once, once I started my, once I started max, like maxing my 401k, whenever that was like in the early 2000s or 2000 timeframe, I never backed off of that. I, I always maxed it out and then always had money accumulating in my checking account every single month that I would like push into a brokerage. Well, I say always, <laughs> here's you know, something else that I really kind of got sideways on was 
because of what was happening with these real estate investments and how we were going underwater and the, the flips weren't really working out for us anymore, um, I felt like I needed a stronger cash position. So I really started um, kind of winding down the taxable brokerage stuff or doing it you know, to a much smaller level um, and just building up a, a giant cash portfolio, which again, hindsight being 2020, this was kind of a mistake because I should have been buying equities at that point as they were on sale. But instead, I had, I probably accumulated um, north of $250,000 in cash just sitting in, account, in an account that sat there for years until I kind of discovered um, you know, the, the FI community and, and J.L. Collins' book, The Simple Path to Wealth. Awesome. So, so you're, you're still able to build a considerable amount of wealth even during this period, or at least break, stay pretty much even because of the tremendous earning, earning power that you were commanding and your relatively low personal expenses with this. It's just that this sets you back right. a long way and um, in terms of, of moving, moving a lot of large portions of the ship forward with this. What, what was your, how much do you think that the lack of strategy and lack of a well-formed business plan cost you here? You, you, you probably still would have lost money going into the flipping business at this point in time, regardless, even if you had a great one, you'd, you'd think at least to a certain degree, but, but what was the difference in losses there? Do you think you could have kept it to under 50 or what, what, what would you kind of get? Oh, yeah. If, if we had had a solid written plan and honestly not, you know, not tried to uh, do one and then said, oh, look, it's going to work. So we can, you know, 5X this or 10X this right in our brains um, that, you know, that uh, the decision to do that and really try to take on multiple flips at a time was, I think, our biggest mistake. Honestly, I think if we had just stuck with one house at a time, yeah, to your point, we could have kept the losses to, to probably under 50K for sure. Which is a you know that's a huge difference, obviously. Now you you think there's a lot of folks out there who probably were employing a very similar, similarly weak strategy or business plan in the flipping business at this point in time, and without that income, they're they're go that's they're it's over, game over with that, right? Yeah, and yep. and so I think the stakes are really high to get these things types of things right and learn from these types of lessons. Where like, hey, you might. Parts of this might have been the right bet. It might have been a perfectly fair thing to say flipping is a great long-term strategy for my wealth with these types of things, but I'm going to execute it with a long-term plan, with a, a capitalization structure that makes more sense, with a conservative cash cushion, with these types of financing, finish number one before starting numbers two and three, and then finish those two before starting number three and four, and you know build out a reasonably defensive and scalable long-term approach because you know you're going to get a couple of down years if you're going to be doing this for 20 to 30 years with that. Um, and that would have mitigated a lot of these losses with that. But I, but I think, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's really, it's, it's fascinating to hear the story of somebody who did lose hundreds of thousands of dollars in the recession doing this type of the business line. So th thank you for sharing this with us. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no problem. Uh, <laughs> I do feel stupid about it, of course, looking back. However, you know, it's been a great learning experience and obviously it's better to lose 300 grand than a million dollars or, you know, $2 million. So, you know, well, yeah, I guess it's all, but it's all, all it's also <laughs> much better to lose a hundred thousand than 300,000. And I think this is a really great cautionary tale from your perspective. You are making, you are making it rain. You are bringing in so much money at work. Oh, of course I can buy this house. Oh, another one came up. I'll buy that too. Your combination of 
too high of income and not too high. I mean, that makes it sound like you shouldn't have been making that money. If that's what they were going to pay you, that's great. But having so much income and, oh, I'm, I don't have to be so cautious with it. I don't have to, you know, run the numbers on this deal. What's, what does it matter if I only make 10,000 instead of 20,000? You know, it's, it's just another one of those throw it on the pile things. Um, so I can see how it would be very easy to get all caught up in, um, you know, oh, I don't have to to count my pennies. And I think that uh, this is a great cautionary tale for right now. I'm in the Facebook groups and the forums on Bigger Pockets all the time. And I'm seeing people, oh, I just bought my seventh house. Okay, do you have a plan? I just bought my 15th house. That's great. Do you have a plan for these houses? And if you do, that's awesome. I'm celebrating your success. But if you don't, stop buying and start looking at your plan because real estate can't lose and it always goes up. And, you know, we're in a housing shortage right now, so it's only going to get better. And that might not be the case, but you can't tell. Like when I remember 2007 and I bought a house at the height of 2006 and I thought I was just going to make a million, a million dollars on my flip. And I did not. And I didn't consider that I might not make money. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. That's pinefinancialgroup.com BP. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. netsuite.com slash bpmoney. Saving for a down payment, a wedding, or just looking for extra money to invest? Monarch Money turns your budgeting woes into wins. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best budgeting app overall. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost, so combined finances become a breeze. Customize your budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash pockets for your extended 30-day free trial. Can I make another observation about this this story here? You, you're making close to 500k at one point during this year, and your low point is probably in the, you're probably making between 200 and 500k during this period when you're sustaining the losses on an annualized basis. Is that right? Yeah, I I I think that you know, and this is going to sound blasphemous since I'm the you know I, I work here at Bigger Pockets with this, <laughs> but. I, I think that real actively managed real estate is a bad option for someone earning that much income. And the reason I think that is because in order to be successful in this real estate business, I think you've got to invest hundreds of hours learning the business. And you've got to sometimes, especially in the early days, do some of those things yourself. Um, and if you're not going to do some of those things yourself, hire and manage the people yourself. And so a lot of times, especially in early days, that's relatively low dollar per hour activity. When I say relatively, I'm saying it's probably $50 an hour activity, maybe maybe 75. And your time when you're making $500,000 a year is worth $250 an hour. So you're arbitraging time very inefficiently, at least in the early phases. And that payback from a real estate investing perspective can compound over a 10 or 15 or 20 year investment career. So it can absolutely be a worthwhile investment, even for someone earning that much money. But you've got to be go into it with that mentality mentality that I'm going to I'm going to do stuff that's probably way less valuable than me just working a little harder at my job and making that next sale or whatever it is at least temporarily to build this up. And that investment of time is really really valuable for somebody making 50 to 200,000 dollars per year because you're going to get that payback within just a few years. But it's going to take you a lot longer um and, and to get that payback on that on that time investment most likely because of the high income earning. And so I almost wonder if actively managed real estate investing is not that good an option for someone in the top percentile of an income earner um, with this. And maybe a more passive approach makes a lot more sense with that. Unless, of course, your goal is to make 10, 15, $25 million in wealth and invest over a long period of time. 
Any reaction to that? Yeah, no, I, I think I completely agree with you, Scott. I think the, the whole idea of having, I mean, you know, when you read The Millionaire Next Door and they talk about the, you know, seven um, sources of, of uh, income that most millionaires have, you think to yourself, okay, well, I need, I have one. So, you know, I should go out and, you know, get another one, right? Not realizing that, um, you know, obviously most average millionaires don't make, the salary that I made, you know, at the, you know, at the height of my career. So, um, I didn't, I, you know, again, hindsight being 2020, I never needed real estate to get there. Um, and I would have been a lot further ahead had I never, you know, gone down that path. Um, but you know, sometimes in life it's, it's valuable to just, just as valuable to learn what not to do than what to do. And, uh, that's the takeaway that I took from that lesson was, you know what, I'm done with real estate. Like there's no, nobody can bring me a project right now. It's like, Hey, this is the great, you know, the best real estate deal you've ever seen in your life. And my, my comment is no, thanks. <laughs> I don't even need to see the details. I just know it's not for me. No, I, I, I love it. I think that's a good, I, I think that, I think this is a very valuable lesson that we're learning here and, a, and, a, and a, an important framework to think through with it. Um, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that real estate is a bad option for everyone, uh, earning the levels that you're earning, but actively managed uh, real estate right. that you're going to manage yourself and those types of things may be a poor relative use of time because the earning, the earning, if, if you're earning five hundred thousand dollars a year and you are working forty hours a week, you're a liar uh, with that <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> um, uh, so you're probably. Yeah, I never. I, I've never worked forty hours a yeah. week in my life. Yeah, I mean, my, my my career was you know sixty sixty hours a week on a on an easy week. Yeah, and I was not you calling know. you a liar. I was just saying that that that's just a fa fairy tale land, right? Anyone earning that level of income is working sixty eighty hours a week or something like that in order to command that income, and they're sustaining it over a long period of time. There's just not time, and 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 the little extra time you do have is very precious with that. And so I think that that's anyway, I, I think it's an interesting problem for a, a small group of users, but I also listeners. And, and, and I think that that's a, a framework to, to think about and an advantage for everybody else that is not earning in that level, because this is a game that is accessible and winnable by the little guy in the United States today, because you, because you're, you're, you, you're competing with people who can't afford to put in the same level of intensity and education and, um, all, all of the, the, the self-management that you can put in place. I agree. Let's move back um, to your story here. And when did you decide to kind of go after financial independence specifically? Well, I think, it, I mean, there was always kind of this vague concept in my mind that I wanted to be financially independent. And that's, I mean, that's what my savings and investing was for, to be financially independent. But I never really had a concrete definition of, you know, what that really meant and, you know, in terms of numbers and time frame. And I, I did have a, a sense that I would like to retire early, but in my brain, like, you know, what's retiring early? It's like late 50s or early 60s instead of mid to late 60s. And then... Um, you know, I think it was early in 2017, I heard Mr. Money Mustache on the Tim Ferriss podcast, and it, it kind of blew my mind. I mean, even Tim's intro, he says, you know, you are one of the most requested guests on this podcast. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is going to be Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger. It's going to be somebody that I, you know, I'm going to like really learn a lot on this interview and somebody, you know, that I, that I want to hear from. And he's like, welcome Mr. Money Mustache. And I'm, I'm like, I'm almost like incensed. I'm like, Mr. Money who? Like who the, what, what the hell are you talking about, Tim? Like, I've never heard of this guy before. How can this guy be the biggest 
you know, one of the biggest requested guests on the podcast. And then I listened to the podcast and it blew my mind. And, you know, I went to his blog and mainlined everything, you know, found the Choose FI groups and community, found JL Collins' book, The Simple Path to Wealth, and mainlined all this stuff. And when I went and did, um, you know, my, my spreadsheet to figure out where I was from a net worth perspective, um, I realized we were already financially independent and, and, accidentally. And sorry, and this is 2017. You've, you discovered that you're already there with that. And Correct. What, so what changes from, the, from this discovery moment? Well, I, I took the spreadsheet to my wife right away and I was like, hey, look, you know, I've been looking at this financial independent retire early movement and I did our, our spreadsheet and our numbers and it looks like um, we're at financial independence now so we can quit our jobs and retire. And my wife says, I love my job. I don't want to quit my job. What are you talking about? <laughs> so I was like, okay, I guess, I guess we're not doing that. And uh, I kind of just put it to the side and, and kept working. And uh, about six months later, her company got sold. And um, she was somewhere uh, right out of college. So she was there for 20 plus years, had worked her way up uh, from like an entry level position to a VP. And, um, basically when our company got sold, what they were doing was selling parts and pieces of the company off and closing divisions. And she was like the hatchet woman and, uh, she was being asked to lay people off and she didn't much like her job anymore. So here she had spent 20 years of her career helping to build this company. And now her job is quite literally to tear it apart. So she came back to me and said, Hey, remember that spreadsheet you showed me, uh, that we could retire early. I'm like, yeah, can you show that to me again? Sure, babe. Here it is. And um, from that, she was able to kind of uh, wrap her head around the fact that, yeah, maybe this might work. And um, she agreed with her boss to stay on and kind of do the difficult work that they needed her to do, but only if she got a package. So she basically orchestrated her own severance package, um, which, which ended up being like a year's worth of uh, compensation. Uh, when she when she retired. Awesome. And, but what another powerful lesson here. You can love your job all you want, but financial independence is still a worthy goal because it can change in a dime with, with some of these things. Yes. Um, Ex exactly. Exactly. She loved her job. She really did. And she she lived like a you know a mile and a half away and she liked the people and she liked the work and she was really good at it. And then um, yeah, once her company changed and they asked her to do, you know, the layoffs, I think, were hard for her because these are, these were people that she knew for in some time, you know, some in some cases, twenty years, and now she's got to let them go. And knowing that most people don't have like the type of financial position that we are in has you know, made it even harder because these people are, you know, what am I going to do next? And uh, yeah, so it was nice to be able to say, oh, look, this the financial independence gives us the option. Um, not that you need to retire, but if you don't like your job anymore, yeah, take some time off. And that was actually our plan. Our plan was just to take a year off and travel. And I was supposed to join her in early retirement. It would have been the end of 2017, like December of 2017. But um, as these things ha you know, happen, um, her boss needed her for like an extra, first it was an extra month, it ended up being like an extra four months. So by the time we got into um, that that point in the year in 2018 for me, I get a fairly large bonus in June. So it's like, well, it's already end of April. Like I have to stay for that. And the biggest bonus that I get is in September, um, typically, uh, but one of my deals slipped. So then it was coming in January. So I ended up doing like this whole one more year syndrome thing. And, um, 
I finally ended up joining her in early retirement, um, May of 2018. So she was basically retired a year before me. So what, what, what does your financial position look like in this final year at, with, with all of these things? And wh where is that wealth? Is it in the 401k? Do you have cash? Do you have after-tax brokerage stuff? What, what, what was uh, the position? Yeah. So, um, you know, where, where we are is we have, we're, you know, we're completely debt-free. We own our home. Um, and we have roughly 60% of our assets in tax sheltered accounts and 40% of our assets in taxable brokerage accounts and, and cash. So we're, we feel like, and this is one of the other things I, I like said to my wife at the time when we were looking at all this, it's like, we have enough money to completely fail at early retirement and our net worth or, or uh, retirement accounts are going to continue to grow for the next 20 years. And we're going to have a lavish traditional retirement, even if we fail in early retirement, which I think is something that when you compartmentalize that in your brain, it's like, okay, it's not that big of a risk to take a year off to travel, which is what really what we wanted to do. Um, because, you know, even if we screw this up, we're still going to be okay in the long run. And, and all these bonuses and severance agreements, you're just stacking chips on, onto an already over large pile. That's uh, one way to put right. it uh, for this for this year. <laughs> and then and then you you you, f you finally complete the the move to at least one year of travel in 2018. What's that year look like? What'd you do? Well, you know, did I, I think I screwed, yeah, I must've screwed up the year. So it was 2018 when she left. It was 2019 when I left. Um, it was, it was awesome. So we actually live at the beach in New Jersey. So we, we punched, I punched out uh, Memorial day weekend and we had uh, Amy's parents um, had a, uh, an anniversary cruise. They wanted the whole family to go on. So we went up and did an Alaskan cruise with them. And then Amy and I, uh, spent some extra time up there. And then we live at the beach, like in our dream location in New Jersey. So we wanted to kind of be at the beach for the summer. So we did that. And then, uh, we went to fast in Germany with a bunch of friends in September and did a big, I think we were gone for uh, about 35 days or so. So we, we went to Germany with friends. We spent some extra time there. We met some other friends in uh, Italy, spent some time in Italy. And then we did a 24-day Mediterranean slash transatlantic cruise. So basically, we took the cruise ship all the way back to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, came home, spent time with family and friends over the holidays. And we were about to actually get on another transatlantic cruise when the coronavirus hit um, in 2020. So our, our travel has kind of been thwarted a bit with the pandemic, but we're, we're getting back to it. We started getting back to it uh, back in May. What, what did you end up doing during the, uh, the pandemic? Did you return to any work or did you just kind of take another, continue to take some more time off and enjoy early retirement? Yeah, we just, take, we just took time off and enjoyed early retirement. My dad retired about six months before me. And um, for both of us, one of our biggest hobbies is fishing. So I got to basically fish with my dad, you know, two to three days a week. Ever since I've retired, if I'm home, my dad and I will fish two to three days a week. So that's um, it's a whole lot of fun. And uh, yeah, we just um, we just laid low. My, my wife did end up going back in the year that I was still working. She went back and did some consulting work for about three months. They kept kind of calling her, asking her to come back in and work on some projects. Um, so she ended up doing that for about three months and made in that time more than our fine number, you know, our annual spending in three months time. So it's like, what were we so concerned about in terms of taking time off when, you know, she could go back to work for three months and 
make more than our expenses for the year. It's just kind of crazy. Awesome. So what's next for you guys? Yeah. So we're going to continue to, uh, to push the travel. Hopefully, um, things will, will settle down with the Delta variant here and we can kind of get back out on the road. Um, I think that, uh, eventually, um, I could see myself doing some more consulting work over time and my wife probably as well, and just have like a much better work-life balance than we ever had in our careers. We both had uh, pretty high stress uh, careers that paid very well, but um, took a big toll. And that's not something we're looking to go back to. I did some really cool volunteering uh, earlier in the year this year. Um, and the thank you notes that I got from individual people just really like touched my heart. Um, it, way more than anything that I did, uh, you know, when I was actually working. So I want to do some more volunteer work. I'm spending time on my photography. Um, and we, yeah, we're just really enjoying our um semi-retired life at this point. I find it interesting that you had one more year syndrome, even though you were making obnoxious money and were putting it away. You were, come on, Scott, this is obnoxious money, <laughs> but you still have it's this, good money. you know, oh, well, let me get my bonus. I, I just want to stay for one more bonus. I just want to stay for the big bonus. I want to stay for one more year. And, you know, we had the same problem. And now after retirement, after like official retirement, you're, you're, uh, you're, well, your wife has an opportunity to make more than you spend in a whole year just working for three months. And you have, I'm sure that your portfolio has grown. Um, are you still in individual stocks or have you made the switch to JL Collins uh, index fund, darling? Yeah, so it's a good question, Mindy. I think, um, you know, in our idealized plan, we're in like a simple, you know, two or three fund portfolio um, with uh, simple path to wealth. However, there's been, um, there are individual stock positions still in our taxable brokerage accounts that I'm slow to unwind just because of uh, tax uh, implications. Um, obviously, there's a big uh, capital gains tax um uh, area for the federal government, but unfortunately in New Jersey, capital gains are taxed as ordinary income. So we're slowly unwinding that over time to get up to our target, you know, idealized portfolio of, you know, VTSAX and VBTLX, but it'll, you know, just take us some time to, to actually fully unwind that. You, you, um, you, you, you obviously crushed it on the offensive front and that that's, what's really kind of helped propel you to this, this point to, 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 to be able to, to retire early with this kind of stuff, you know, and, and a lot of people are listening and saying, Oh, I'll make 500 K, but a lot of people that are going into, into the five movement and are looking to retire early, I think could take career trajectories that would have a chance to replicate those, that earning 10 years into their career. If they're willing to work the 60 to 80 hour weeks and have that combination of, you know, being willing, able, able, and lucky enough to be in a tra career trajectory that offers those opportunities. Right. Um, how quickly could you have gotten to the, the, the FI state looking back? Do you think it would, you would have been able to do it in five to 10 years versus the, the, the 15 to 20 that it took here? What, what's your kind of thought process there for someone who's looking to repeat the offensive success that you've had and, and get to five? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, thought exercise, Scott. I've not, I've not really thought about it that way. But if I were to go back and say, you know what, if I had known about Mr. Money and a Mustache and, and J.L. Collins, you know, at the early part of my career, you know, when would I have hit five and be able to retire early if I wanted to. Um, yeah, I could have shaved off easily a decade, I think, um, easily. So, I mean, I, 
I retired at 44. Um, I probably could have done it by, by 34. So that would have been, you know, a relatively short nine year career out of college. I think I probably could have done it. Um, you know, having said that I wouldn't change anything. I mean, I, you know, my journey is my journey and, you know, everything happens for a reason. And, um, you know, even, even, uh, being in the position of, you know, having achieved financial independence relatively accidentally, um, by the time I was in my early forties is still, you know, not, not too, not too shabby. Absolutely. You got a, You've got a, a wonderful and impressive journey. I was not implying, I, I was, I was just <laughs> thinking like for someone listening, if they think they can create the, the economic success, sounds like you think you could have done it in 10 years or that it could be achievable by the next yeah. guy in, in 10 years, um, with a similar career trajectory. Yeah. I mean, and especially like, just like you said, there are industries out there where the, the amount you get paid is un- unrealistically large for the, for the work that you do. Not that the work's not difficult and not that it's not time consuming, but you know, you can get paid like a really unrealistic amount of money to do things that you can be become very good at. And I feel like super blessed to even found, you know, this whole sales engineering career. Cause it's not something when I was in college, I didn't know anything about it. Um, but you know, having fallen into that and then did, everything I could to get really, really good at it and to be the guy that all the sales guys want to take on multi-million dollar deals. Um, that, you know, really gave me the, the ability to earn significantly more than, it, you know, it realistically I would be worth in any other career path. Right. Just thank God I was born now to the parents I was born to in the time that I was born in, you know, 500 years ago, I've got no skills. I know how to type on a, on a keyboard. <laughs> But, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be financially independent, um, in, in another day and time. I think I, you know, I'm really lucky to be in the position that I'm in. Well, you know, way back on episode 32, we interviewed the couple from the planting our pennies website. And Mr. Pop said, if you don't know what you want to do, go into sales because you can make an outsized amount of money in sales even having no skills, having, you know, anybody can sell something. And if you can get good at sales, you can make a ridiculous amount of money, which is clear by your story. So, you know, I think that IT is a great field for people to get into, especially if you're, you know, just starting college. I I mean, everything is done on computers now. So IT is going to be awesome, but also just being able to sell something to someone, being able to speak the language. I mean, you have a really unique set of skills. You can speak computer developer language and you can speak regular person language. And I'm not trying to offend all of you computer programmers out there, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, you can speak these two different languages and that makes you very valuable because there are some people who only speak regular person language, which is me. And there are some people who only speak developer language and to have them connect is really a difficult conversation, but you come in and, you know, make the translation and it's really, it's really helpful. It's really beneficial to everybody. So yeah, if you are struggling with what you want to do with your life, go check out sales, commission-based. I mean, look at real estate. I'm a real estate agent and I I don't want to say I don't try, but it's, you know, with my position at Bigger Pockets, I have a lot of, um, a lot of uh, forward-facing time and people are like, oh, I'll, I'll have Mindy help me buy a house. So I do get a lot of leads from Bigger Pockets and it is, not that difficult to sell real estate and you make some pretty outsized 
uh, income selling a few houses a week. I'm sorry, a few houses a month, a few houses a week, a few houses a month, a few houses a year. I mean, you know, three-ish percent, uh, three-ish percent on a $500,000 house is, there you go, $15,000. You sell a couple of them and you're making Bob Haynes money. I love it. I think it's been a great discussion here. I, I, I admire your career trajectory and the skills that you've, you've developed here. And I think it's, I think it's fascinating that you're, you know, you know, to, to learn from some of the mistakes that you made during the, the real estate, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the recession in real estate. Thank you for sharing all of that. Is there anything else you'd like to bring up before we move on to our famous four? Uh, well, I guess the, the only other thing I would say is that, um, you know, I wouldn't be financially independent if it wasn't for my wife. Uh, we were actually on our own independent accidental five journeys uh, before we ever met. Um, and so coming together with uh, my wife and a partner that is, you know, a strong advocate for building a great financial position and kind of, um, you know, as a natural saver like myself is, uh, you know, a whole other half of the story that people didn't get to hear today, but just as important to putting me in the position that I'm in today. Love it. Absolutely. The, uh, the, 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 the fifth asset, right? The cash flow positive spouse. Exactly. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Mindy liked that one. <laughs> the way that always makes me laugh. <sighs> okay, Bob, it's time for our famous four. Are you ready? Let's do it. What is your favorite finance book? Say it's for, yeah, for, for mindset and, uh, you know, how millionaires get made. It's the millionaire next door for investing. It's JL Collins, simple path to wealth. Love both those books. Yeah. The, uh, they, they've both come up several times, but you're absolutely right. They're such great books. What was your biggest money mistake? Although I, I think I can probably guess where this one's going. Well, I think my biggest money mistake to me at this point, I think is, you know, having that North of a quarter million dollars sitting in a savings account from, you know, 2008, 2009 until I read Simple Path to Wealth in uh, 2017. So the the opportunity cost of leaving that money in cash um, during the, the recovery <laughs> uh, is just kind of, you know, I don't, again, I don't even want to run the numbers because I know it's- No, ginormous. don't run the numbers. I'm sorry. Did you say for from 2008 to 2017? Correct. Yeah. I didn't take that money- that I originally was building up during the great, you know, the financial crisis. I didn't take that cash position and put it in the market and have it working for me until I read the simple path to wealth and, and heard Mr. Money Mustache. I, I love it. That that that's a really wise mistake to, to to bring up in the context of your story because most people would just blurt out the three hundred thousand in. Uh, uh, and losses from the real estate portfolio, but you're talking about opportunity cost here, which is probably north of half a million. You probably doubled that money, maybe, and, and then some, uh, easily over that over that that stretch. And that's a that's a very good. That's a much bigger mistake that most people just that goes completely unnoticed by folks. So I love it. Great uh, well, mistake. So side question: uh, In terms of monthly spending, how much cash do you keep on hand now? Um, right now, we have about one year, a little bit, maybe 15 months worth of cash okay. on hand. Um, we built up a stronger cash position before we retired. So we actually retired with about three years of, of cash um, just to kind of, 
see if we could mitigate any sequence of return risk. Um, even though I know it really doesn't do that, but it, it, psychologically it helped as a crutch um, to be able to, to pull the trigger. Um, my wife and I are right now kind of debating what we do going forward, whether we stay with kind of like the, the one year, we let it go down to six months, or we plus it back up a bit. Um, and we haven't exactly filled in on that. I think, I feel like the market's pretty frothy. I know today it's, it's on a down day, but um, you know, I feel like maybe we should say, hey, you know, we're up quite a bit this year. Let's take some some cash out and just, you know, plus up our, our cash account. But that also feels market timing to me. So I don't know. Not sure what we're going to do, but we have a year, a little bit over a year on hand right now. Uh, what is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? If you're just starting out and you're just finding this community, I would say, you know, come up with some goals for yourself of, you know, what you want to do and take the enthusiasm that you have now for starting out and take action on it. Um, the best thing that I think you can do for yourself is set some things in motion, make some decisions, and then uh, go ahead and make those things automatic. Like, for example, um, getting your 401k, if you're not currently maxing out your 401k or at least getting all of your employer match, do that. Um, but really set something up like harness the power of your excitement today to make sure that you're kind of setting yourself up to automatically do the right thing over time to help get you to financial independence. Awesome advice. What is your favorite joke to tell at parties? Favorite joke. So uh, two atoms are walking down the street and the one says to the other, wait, we've got to go back. I lost an electron. And the other one says, are you sure? And the other one says, yes, I'm positive. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. We'd have a lot of chemistry with these jokes. Where can people find out more about you, Bob? Um, I'm on social media, uh, Instagram and Twitter. I'm at RJ Haynes, at R-J-H-A-I-N-E-S. And then you can find me in the Bigger Pockets Money Facebook group, uh, Bob Haynes. Awesome. Well, we'll link to all of those places in the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash moneyshow235 if you're interested in checking those out. Um, thank you so much for coming on today, Bob. This was a great story and, and a lot of lessons learned here. Thanks for having me. It was a great Yeah, fun. this was a lot of fun. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Mindy. Thanks, and we'll Scott. talk to you soon. Okay, Scott, that was Bob and his fantabulous story. What did you think of his episode? I think it was a great story. I think that um, there was obviously the huge win that was his career and some putbacks based on his investing approach and those types of things. And I think it's it's fascinating to learn about the the relative scale and size of those mistakes and, and you know the, the 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 offense that he was able to generate to offset some of those things. So I think it was a great, a, a really interesting story. And I think there's a lot of things to learn there, especially if you're looking to replicate a high-income career. Yes. And don't keep your money in cash is uh, another another takeaway from this. But yeah, he did make a great income. That is fantastic. He also made some mistakes that that could have been mitigated if he had had more of a plan with his flipping career. And that's, you know, that's fine. I've made mistakes in my flipping career, too. Sometimes it's, you know, you get all excited about the the current scenario and then you can't see that the market's about to crash. Um, you know, and, and sometimes in flipping, you are, there are circumstances outside of your control, um, but you can control how frequently you're buying and you can control, oh, you know what? This isn't going so well. Let's not buy anymore right now. So there are, I think Bob has done some great 
things. And I think that he, you know, could have done some other things better. But I really like this story today. I really liked that, you know, I still made, I made mistakes and I was still able to overcome them. He made some big mistakes and he was still able to overcome them. And yes, having a great salary is one of the key levers that he pulled in order to, to overcome those. But, you know, like I said, episode 32, Mr. Planting Our Pennies, sales is a really great uh, trajectory if you don't know what you want to do with your life. Yeah. I mean, the difference between what you bring in and what you spend, that is the fundamentals that power every one of these stories, right? And if you want to become very wealthy early in life, you have to earn more money than the average at some point in that journey, right? You're, I mean, you're, you're, you, you need to bring in, you need to earn money, you need to spend very little of it, you need to invest it, or you need to create assets. And at some point, every one of the stories that we're going to talk to is going to have an outsized performance in at least one of those areas with this, if they're going to be able to retire way early in life, in their 40s, in their 30s definitely if they're in, in their twenties. And so I, I think it's important to learn from every one of those stories and to recognize like one of those fronts should be available to you at some point and to some degree, if you're looking to replicate these journeys, if you don't earn a lot of money, perhaps you have more time and you can apply that, that extra time to create assets. If you don't have very much time, hopefully you're able to earn a little bit extra. Um, with that, regardless of your circumstances, there should be some control that you're able to have over your expenses, especially over a several year period. And as you make large decisions around purchases and those types of things and long-term, ideally there is some control over your career and the, the amount of, the amount of income that you can generate and the things you can do to at least accelerate the growth on that income front. And it's which lever can you pull in which circumstance? And when you're in a really high income earning circumstance, I think the big takeaway from today is creation of a flipping business is probably not a good strategic choice because it's it's too much commitment of time and energy. And in order for it to be meaningful, it's got to be a huge risk that you've got to take to be to even make ten percent of your of your salary each year in predictable profits with that. Um, if you earn a high income, probably the best things you can do are keep reasonable control over your expenses and consider some sort of passive investing approach for the time being with that. Um, anyways, so I, I just think that it's, it's important to keep those frameworks in mind and know that there's always going to be a lever that, that our, our, our guests are able to pull um, or push that is, is outsized for them. And for Bob, we had income today. Yep. And like I said, we're here to tell every money story. Mm-hmm. Okay. Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. From episode 235 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is Scott Trench, and I am Mindy Jensen saying swish, swish, little fish. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the Bigger Pockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com/deals 
enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.